It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 331 for the 24th of February, 2013. This week, do you need a file sharing program? If so, I have a suggestion for you. How big data and the cloud will affect you. An abbreviated report on how photography continues to evolve. And in short circuits, an update on digital magazines. Is Google Glass better than beer glasses? And old technology never goes away. It just returns as a smartphone app. Last week, I mentioned several utilities that are helpful, but time constraints caused links to the various websites to be omitted. Time constraints, that's another way to say, ooh, I screwed up, without saying, ooh, I screwed up. Well, the links are now present, and you'll find them on last week's program. There's a link to last week's program on the TechBiter Worldwide website on this week's program. Let's start with finding the right file sharing program. Windows 8 includes 7 gigabytes of free storage on Microsoft's SkyDrive platform, but you don't need to install Windows 8 to use SkyDrive. It works just fine on Windows 7 once you've installed a small SkyDrive application, and you don't even really need to have a Windows computer. SkyDrive works just fine on Macs, too. In fact, it's easy to access your files on SkyDrive even if you don't have a computer. Even a phone with a web browser will do. Against that backdrop, I set off recently looking for something better. I looked at BoxNet. I looked at Dropbox. I looked at RapidShare. Some of them, such as Dropbox, offer just a measly two gigabytes for free. That's barely enough to test. Others, such as RapidShare, offer unlimited storage, even for free accounts, but they make those free accounts so difficult to use that you'll need to spend money to buy a paid account just to learn that the system causes some of your computers to become unusable. The variety of features offered and the pricing structures make it clear that the companies certainly aren't colluding on prices. The prices are all over the place. OneNote already includes file synchronization across machines, so maybe, just maybe, I should have realized that Microsoft has pretty much figured out how to make file synchronization work. After booting to safe mode and using the Windows 8 restore point to free my netbook computer from RapidShare, which had rendered it entirely unusable, I decided to try SkyDrive. And after installing the SkyDrive application on a desktop computer, a notebook computer, and a tablet, all of them running Windows 8, I pitched in 50 bucks for a year's worth of usage at the 100 gigabyte level. Even 100 gigabytes isn't much, but if the primary use is to maintain current working files in a location where I can always get to them, I figure that'll be plenty. And that's exactly what I had in mind. 
Yes, you do need to download and install the SkyDrive application, even if you're running Windows 8. SkyDrive is available in the Metro interface without the application, but if you want to be able to access your files directly from the Windows Explorer on the desktop, you will need the application. It's small, just a few megabytes, and it installs in seconds. If you use a Microsoft Outlook login on a Windows 8 computer, the application will immediately connect you to your SkyDrive account. On Windows 7, a Mac or a phone or Windows 8 computer where you set up only a local account, you will need to provide your username and password. Just once, though. After that, it's pretty much automatic. And unlike some of the other file-sharing applications I tried, SkyDrive provides file locking so that files won't be mangled by having two people edit the same file simultaneously. My primary complaint about SkyDrive when Windows 8 first arrived turned out to be a misunderstanding. By default, Office 2013 applications want to store files on SkyDrive, and that means saving or opening a large file can be time-consuming. Additionally, files stored on SkyDrive aren't backed up locally. But here's the thing. The SkyDrive application sets up a directory on the local machine where all SkyDrive files are stored. Change a file on the local computer or add a new file to the SkyDrive folder and the changes will be replicated within seconds on Microsoft's server and then also within seconds on any computer that has your SkyDrive credentials. Any computer that's turned off will be updated the next time you start it. Users who delete SkyDrive files can restore them from the recycle bin back to the original folder, and anything in the recycle bin doesn't count against your storage limit. Now, you can't game the system by keeping a large number of files in the recycle bin. Anything you delete will be recoverable for at least three days. After that, you're taking a chance. In some cases, the files can be retained for a month, but keep in mind that the size of the files in the recycle bin counts against you. If that size exceeds 10% of your storage limit, SkyDrive will start permanently dropping files, starting with the oldest files in the recycle bin. SkyDrive, which was originally called Windows Live Folders, has been around for a while, since 2007, in fact. In June 2010, an update provided automatic support for Office web apps, including support for file versioning. And late in 2012, another update added the application that makes SkyDrive available in Windows Explorer, and also on Apple OS X, for that matter. So far, Apple has not made available its file-sharing application to any users of operating systems other than Apple's. Users of recent versions of Microsoft Office can use their desktop applications to simultaneously edit the same section of documents stored on SkyDrive. This applies both to users of Windows computers and Macs. Any changes will be synchronized when the document is saved, and in the event of conflicting changes, the user will be offered the option to choose which version to retain. So, if you're looking for a file synchronization application... I gotta give my vote to SkyDrive.
Anybody who reads publications that deal with data processing at nearly any level probably has seen the term big data. They've probably seen it a lot in the past year. So what the heck is big data? And how is it going to affect you? Well, big data, and I'm going to call it BD from now on, is a collection of data sets so large and so complex that an existing database management tool cannot reasonably be used to process it. Data processing applications are said to be scalable if a process that was designed for a small data set can be used for larger data sets. But there are limits to scalability. The BD issue is a larger and more severe problem for large corporations and government agencies, but it also affects small and medium-sized businesses that are increasingly awash in data that they really hoped to use to identify business trends, determine the quality of research, and link related documents. The increasing use of mobile devices, apps, and cloud-based computing exacerbate the problem. Microsoft recently surveyed more than 280 decision-makers in mid-size and large organizations on the topic of BD, Big Data. Among their findings, transforming BD into insights has become a top priority. Now, this isn't exactly a new concept. The understanding that piles of data do not equate to knowledge or understanding isn't new. In other words, the immense number of trees can sometimes obscure the view of the forest. Current limits on the size of data sets that can be processed in a reasonable amount of time are measured in exabytes of data. Yes, that's a lot of data. Far more than any medium or small business will ever have. But even smaller organizations are seeing increases in data that, while they could be handled easily by a mainframe computer, are taxing the limits of desktop systems commonly used in those settings. The world's technological per capita capacity to store information has roughly doubled every 40 months, 40 months since the 1980s. And we are currently creating 2.5 quintillion bytes of data every day. To some extent, hardware is providing, if not a solution to the problem, at least a way to mitigate the effects. 64-bit computers have been available since the 1960s, although in those days, the 64-bit computers were mammoths, both in terms of size and cost. Intel introduced a 64-bit chip nearly a decade ago, and even Windows XP had a 64-bit version, although just a few people used it. Today, all Macs are 64-bit systems. Many notebook computers have 64-bit processors. Even some tablets come with 64-bit CPUs. But even so, some businesses try to save a few bucks by continuing to use 32-bit hardware. If speed is important to you, selecting a computer with a 64-bit processor is the first step you should take. The 64-bit hardware opens the door to the next consideration that can improve performance. That's memory. The 32-bit systems are limited to 4 gigabytes of RAM, of which only about 3 gigabytes are going to be available to applications. By contrast, 64-bit systems can address a virtually unlimited amount of memory. Now, if you're a stickler for facts, there is a limit. It's about 4 petabytes. Good luck finding any mainboard with enough memory slots for 4 petabytes 
of memory. The reason more memory makes a system faster is easy to understand. When a computer's memory is full, any new operating instructions cannot be placed in memory until what's currently in memory is written out to the disk. The term for that is swapping. And the more times instructions have to be swapped out to disk and then later swapped back in, the slower the computer is going to run. Some software manufacturers, Adobe, for example, have already transitioned some of their higher-end video processing applications to run only on 64-bit architecture. These applications are so computationally intensive that on a 32-bit system they would be unacceptably slow. Rather than maintain two versions, Adobe simply decided that users of these applications will understand the need for faster hardware. And for the most part, this seems to be true. There is a third trick to speeding up your computer, though. Hard disk drives have become faster, but they're still the slowest components in the computer in terms of data transfer. The boot process and loading programs are disk-intensive operations, and that's why the fastest and most expensive disk drives come with large amounts of cache memory. Increasingly, though, savvy computer buyers are specifying solid-state disk drives that will hold the computer's operating system and applications. Unlike standard drives, the solid-state drives, or SSDs, have a limited number of write cycles, and eventually the solid-state memory becomes exhausted. SSDs typically arrive with more than the stated amount of memory available. This allows for a certain percentage of the drive to be taken out of service over time and still allow the SSD to maintain its rated size. So, although SSDs are a smart way to speed a computer's startup operation and decrease the amount of time limited to load programs, they're not particularly good choices for storing data that changes a lot. Big data is a big topic in scientific circles. That's because scientific uses of data are big, and these uses provide some insights into where we're going because science runs on data, but the rest of the world does follow science's lead. So consider this. The Large Hadron Collider experiments used 150 million sensors, and each of those sensors delivered data 40 million times per second. Scientists were observing nearly 600 million collisions per second, and a filtering mechanism eliminated all but about one one-thousandth of the data. Even then, the scientists found about 100 collisions per second that looked interesting. The data flow from the experiments represented 25 petabytes annually. But then the data streams are replicated and that expands the usage to 200 petabytes. If the process didn't discard all but about one one-thousandth of one percent of the data, scientists would have to deal with about 500 exabytes per day, and that's before replication. Your business needs, or home needs, aren't going to approach data flows like that for a long, long time. But you've undoubtedly seen increases in the amount of stuff that you have on hand. Even for home users, it's not uncommon to have several terabytes of data. The future is arriving quickly and bringing with it lots of data.
And yet another driver for this big data comes from the rhetorical sky. Yes, I'm speaking about cloud-based computing. It's been a couple of years since IBM announced its smarter computing framework to support what it called the Smarter Planet. That was back in March of 2011. Although the framework has several components, one of the most critical is cloud computing. Most of us have never seen a cloud that computes, nor have any of us published a desktop. Even so, the term cloud computing seems to have caught on just as desktop publishing did back in the 1980s, and apparently we're going to have to live with these terms forever. At its most basic, cloud computing entails the use of software that's delivered as a service over a network, typically the Internet. The software as a service has earned the entertaining acronym SAAS, or SAS, And cloud computing is actually based on the use of a cloud symbol in network diagrams in which the cloud represents the network. Cloud computing also involves storing a user's data remotely for access at any time from any location that has an internet connection. When dealing with cloud-based applications, network speed becomes an important consideration. That's in addition to the speed of the remote computers where the applications are housed. Users often access applications via a web browser or a lightweight desktop or mobile application. The promoters of cloud-based computing say that this is a way to reduce maintenance, improve manageability, and move new applications into production faster. Ironically, though, many of these same claims were made in the 1980s, and that's when applications were being moved away from central mainframe computers to small computers on users' desks. In fact, the concept of cloud computing, although it wasn't called that, dates back to the 1950s. As large mainframe computers became available, video terminals called dumb terminals were attached to them to allow individual users to run applications in time-sharing systems. A 1960s-era computer scientist suggested that computation may someday be organized as a public utility. That may bring to mind thoughts of the Internet. In 1966, Douglas Parkhill's The Challenge of Computer Utility examined the future of computing by discussing elastic provisioning of computing services provided online, essentially, as a utility. As far back as the 50s, scientists were suggesting a world filled with computers and dumb terminals. The future, as seen from the 1950s, included a dozen or so gigantic computing centers worldwide. In those days, centralization was the only option imaginable because of the cost of computers. More recently, though, Amazon has become a key player in cloud computing, and even Microsoft has entered the arena with its Windows 8, Office 2013, and SkyDrive. You may recall I mentioned SkyDrive a bit earlier. Amazon's gigantic computer centers sometimes use only 10% of their computing capacity. They do that to allow for the occasional spike in activity. Performance will be a key consideration if centralized cloud computing is to catch on. If we've learned one thing in the past 30 years, it's this. Nobody 
likes waiting for a computer. I had really hoped to talk a lot about photography this week and how we use it, but because of technical difficulties, this report's going to be a little shorter than you might expect. The Kodak bankruptcy has been the most obvious example of how much photography has changed in the past 15 years or so, and for Rochester, New York, that change has been devastating. A friend of mine closed his photo studio less than a year ago. The studio once photographed hundreds of weddings every year. At closing, though, only a few were on the schedule, and increasingly that's because photography is seen as a do-it-yourself undertaking. You know, photography used to be such a difficult business. You started by shooting people, which led to nothing but negatives, and after that you had to blow them up and then hang them. Well, things have changed, and we'll go into that in the next few weeks. But this week, I want to ask you if you remember Spiritone. Spiritone specialized in low-cost lenses and filters for cameras, lighting, and darkroom equipment. Fred Spira started the company back in 1941. He developed film in the bathroom of his parents' apartment starting in 1946, then moved into a loft on West 27th Street in New York City. Eventually, the company grew into a multi-million dollar company, and mail orders were filled from a warehouse in Flushing. The New York Times reported Spira's death at 83 back in 2007, and the obituary noted accurately that amateur and professional photographers awaited each gadget catalog as if they were children waiting for a Christmas toy catalog. Spira's company was one of the first to import Japanese photo equipment to the U.S., but Spiratone never sold cameras, just accessories. Business declined starting in the 1980s, and Spiratone went out of business in 1990. That was three years after Spira retired. I still have some of the gadgets that the company sold. And switching gears a bit... Many people have kind of a love-hate relationship with a program called Photoshop. Paul Miller recently wrote about that, and I have a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to his very interesting blog on why we like Photoshop, but simultaneously hate it. And I had hoped to have a longer section on photography this week, but those hardware problems I mentioned earlier have pushed it to the background. So expect more about photography soon. In Short Circuits, an update on digital magazines. Newsweek, it seems to me, continues to struggle in an all-digital world. Now, it's not the magazine which has improved greatly. By going digital and eliminating the cost of paper, printing, and mailing, the publisher has been able to enlarge the size considerably. The problem continues to be the download speed and the large number of formats that must be supported. 
That said, however, I have to say that Barnes & Noble has made some significant improvements now that the Nook reader manages to download an entire issue in about five and a half minutes. That's a lot better than the 30 to 45 minutes I had to wait initially, but it's still far too slow, particularly on a 15 megabits per second connection. I've already ruled out Zinio as being unreliable and unusable. Not having an iPad, I haven't been able to test drive the iTunes version of Newsweek. There is no Kindle version that my antique device will play. And I haven't looked at Newsweek's interactive web reader for a while, but initially I found it to be unreliable and largely unusable. The Nook reader is by far the best interface for reading magazines, but Barnes & Noble must do something about the speed. Apparently, Newsweek has heard from less than happy subscribers and has finally published an email address that people can use to contact someone at customer service. I'll probably continue to grumble about the amount of time required to download Newsweek, but at least the process is now fast enough that I no longer feel like throwing the computer out the window. This week I'm wondering if Google Glass will turn out to be any better than beer glasses. If you win a contest that Google is running, you'll have the opportunity to acquire a pair of Google Internet Glass for $1,500. Google says these are the next breakthrough in mobile computing. Or maybe it's just another distraction for drivers that will push Google's project to build cars that can drive themselves. Google announced the contest this week, but they didn't say how many pairs of Google Glass for which they plan to award options to purchase. If you have a spare 1500 bucks around and want to give it a try, use Google Plus or a Twitter account to submit your application. Maximum 50 words, and be sure to use the hashtag IfHadGlass. And your entry has to be submitted no later than Wednesday, the 27th of February. Win, and you could be a lucky spender. If you win, you'll be able to buy a copy of the beta model of Google Glass. You won't be the first to own them, though. Google sold copies of the glasses, also for 1500 bucks, to some computer programmers last June. Google says the devices will do much of what a smartphone does, except they will respond to voice commands instead of push buttons. A small display is attached to the right eyepiece, the operating system for the Google Glass glasses is, of course, Android. So now, pedestrians who are distracted by Google Glass will be able to walk into the paths of motorists who are also distracted by Google Glass. Sounds like a good way to clean the gene pool to me. Google says the glasses will be easier to use for people who want to take pictures or record a video. Ah, I can see it now! An upgrade to YouTube will allow people to stream video from their glasses 24-7. Okay, truth in reporting. That was hyperbole. At least, I think it was hyperbole. It was my intent. A video by Google shows Google Glass wearers skiing, horse riding, and skydiving, among other activities. One user is even on a roller coaster. 
Google Glass will be available in charcoal, tangerine, shale, cotton, and sky blue colors. If you'd like more information, there's a link to the Google blog from the TechBiter Worldwide website. No glasses required. Old technology, it seems, never goes away. It just sticks around as a smartphone app. Case in point, Tamagotchi. Remember those things? Back in the 1990s, you could buy a Tamagotchi pet. These were egg-shaped plastic toys. They would periodically request food or water or attention. Ignore your Tamagotchi long enough and it would die. Well, now you'll be able to add a Tamagotchi to your smartphone. Will this make your smartphone any less intelligent? Bandai developed the Tamagotchi, and now Sync Beats Entertainment has licensed the technology. If you have an Android device, you can relive the mid-1990s by adding the app. Tamagotchi Life, L-I-F-E. And if you wondered, Life, L-I-F-E, turns out to be an acronym for Love is Fun Everywhere. The game is based on the original Tamagotchi, but it has something the original didn't have. It can be updated. And Syncbeats plans to do that about every two months. And they also plan to make it available for Apple devices. The Tamagotchi Life is being offered for free, meaning it is supported by advertising. If you don't want the ads, you'll be able to get rid of them for a buck, or 99 cents in marketing speak. The kids who played with the Tamagotchi toys a decade and a half ago are now in their 20s and 30s. Given the popularity of apps such as Farmville, the Tamagotchi app will probably prove to be most popular. Oh, and coming soon, Tamagotchi Life products. Look for clothing, accessories, and other stuff. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.